it's sad, but it seems like a relatively new concept for a lot of deer managers is to break out of the food plot, start going into managing the forest. And, and I think that's where a guy who's got smaller acreage can laugh himself all the way to the taxidermist <laughs> because the big landowner is probably focused on food plots, feeders, minerals, things like that. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and we have a great episode lined up for you this week as we'll be talking with Adam Keith of Land and Legacy about habitat management strategies and what you need to know to develop a management plan for your property. Adam and I have a great conversation and, and he shares just a lot of great tips for improving a property not only for deer and, and the habitat, but for the huntability of the property as well. So be sure to stick around for that conversation. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by NDA sponsor Loophold, makers of world-class optics. Hey, besides the, the phenomenal quality, one thing that stands out about Loophold is their lifetime guarantee on all their scopes and binoculars. Uh, if at any time your Leopold rifle scope or red dot scope, binoculars or spotting scope doesn't perform to your expectations, Leopold will repair or replace it for free. It doesn't matter if you're the original owner or not. And hey, that, that's pretty a pretty rare guarantee in this day and age. So if you would like to check out Leopold's full line of products, you can do so at Leopold.com. That's L-E-U-P old.com a nda just kicked off a new fundraiser this week and with this one everybody's a winner you don't have to worry about uh, buying a chance and and not getting chosen uh, because what we've actually done is packaged an nda annual membership an nda cap and an onyx elite membership together and for a total of 99 dollars. so that's a 160 dollar value for just $99. Uh, the only catch is we, we only have 150 of these special memberships available to sell, and I am certain that they will sell out. So if that's something that interests you, I would encourage you to, to take advantage of that as quickly as possible, and you can do so on our website at deerassociation.com slash onyx. One last thing I want to mention before we jump on the phone with Adam uh, next month, NDA will once again be hosting the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting virtually. Uh, this is a, the second year in a row we've done that. The meeting will take place February 21st through the 23rd. And this is the meeting where deer biologists and researchers from across the country kind of come together to share the latest in whitetail deer research. And there's, man, there's always a lot of great in-depth information shared at this event for those of you who are are serious deer nerds like myself and so the other the other folks here at the National Deer Association uh, in fact a lot of the cool research that you see us that that we write about in Quality Whitetails magazine and on our website and and the research that we uh, we make videos about for our YouTube channel a lot of that we first hear about through this annual meeting so if that's something that interests you, uh, you can learn more about that on our website at DeerAssociation.com. Look under the Conserve menu tab for the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting link. And with that, guys, I think that's all of our housekeeping items. So let's jump on the phone now with Adam Keith to talk about habitat management and creating a management plan for your property. Adam, how you doing? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, just just wrap, wrapping up our deer season here in Georgia and uh, starting to turn my attention towards some habitat work. So I, I thought this would be a great time to get you on here and, and talk a little bit about kind of the planning process of, of habitat management, because I know I, I think it's an important topic. And I know that a lot of guys like myself, we, we just naturally want to... Uh, just kind of jump in and start doing some work, you know, I'll, let's plant a food plot over there and, you know, let's cut some trees over here without really sitting down and thinking, you know, planning this thing out from a 
from a big picture sort of view. So I wanted to get you on here to talk about that and maybe as we enter a new year here, help some folks kind of, uh, or inspire them to sit down and, and do some planning, you know, not only for this year, but just, you know, thinking ahead. So. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the, I'm I just having this conversation with some guys um, yesterday, actually about the order of procedure when it comes to certain projects. But ultimately, if you look at it just from a landowner, whether you're a 10 year landowner or a recent landowner and looking at, planning and going, what is the correct order of procedure, whether that be doing this project before I do that project, before I do that project, because if there isn't a plan in place, it'd be very similar to somebody just going, I'm going to clean the shop and you start sweeping up the stairs and you realize, and you start sweeping on the bottom <laughs> and you sweep the bottom step and you move it up the next one, you sweep the, the second step onto the first step and you realize you're sweeping the, all the steps uh, multiple times instead of starting at the top and working your way down. And uh, so order of procedure is crucial in not only just saving time, but avoiding headache, avoiding financial difficulty, whether it be dumping money into a road system uh, or food plots, and then realize that, uh, oh, those are in the wrong place. I should have <laughs> done it differently. So it's all part of what I do for a living and and uh, what I enjoy. I mean, man, I've gotten to the point now where I've accepted that habitat management is more enjoyable for me than hunting. And I know there's a crowd out there that now is toning me off because they're like, this guy's out of his <laughs> mind. But um, it is something I just absolutely enjoy and uh, can't stop thinking about it. Yeah, I, I hear you there. And I, 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 I'm on the fence now, I guess, as far as I, I don't, I wouldn't go as far as to say I like it uh, more than the actual hunting process, but, but yeah. it's, it's right there. I mean, I understand uh, the attraction yeah. just from, uh, you know, the little time I've, I've owned my little 15 acres here, um, and I enjoy the heck out of just messing around with it and planning and, and, you know, just trying to uh, improve it for deer hunting. So I, I certainly yeah. understand where you're coming from. I mean, think about it uh, for me is over time and, and you as well as you realize that there's days that nah, the hunting's not great. The conditions or wind or whatever, for whatever reason, is not great. And you realize, you know what? There's a lot of stuff I can do in the fall on my own place. So I'm going to go do that. And then all of a sudden, this is what I was doing this fall. It's like I spent more time during hunting season just working on the farm than I did actually hunting. Now, I was fortunate enough. I shot a buck in mid-October and had kind of set up in my head that I'm only shooting one buck on the family farm or on our farm. And once I got him, it was like, well, I guess it's back to the chainsaw. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, sometimes, especially uh, especially when it comes to hunting, it's it's more about uh, the quality than the quantity sometimes, you know. the No doubt. Yeah. And we sh I shot the buck in a nice restored woodland and there's all kinds of wildflowers and grasses down on the forest floor and he was wading through it and I grunted at him and he couldn't see real well. So he came right down in range. It was like, man, like, I, yeah, I sound cheesy, but I love it when a plan comes yeah. together. He read the script. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Good deal. Hey, before we get too far, too far into the subject here, though, if you would just, um, you know, tell the folks a little bit about yourself and, and maybe kind of what led you and, and Matt, Matt Dye to team up and create Land and Legacy. Yeah, you know, so appreciate that. Um, Matt Dye and myself are co-owners of Land and Legacy. We started in 2017 um, as a consulting firm to assist landowners in improving their property for whitetail deer, wild turkey, quail, incorporating cattle, using timber operations to improve habitat and hunting as well as make some income. Overall, it's just natural resource management. Um, a lot of our focus is around whitetail deer because that's what a lot of landowners like to think about. And um, we are now in our, I guess, going on our fifth consulting season. And we have two other guys who are focused and helping us with a great emphasis in upland bird management. And basically, we help landowners with trying to, in, in very simple terms, I say, trying to reach their goals in the shortest amount of time possible with the least money spent as possible. And uh, so I can say that we help on habitat, but I've had many, many discussions where we discussed uh, 
financial management and, and the inputs going into that farm. And I don't know, I got a sneaky suspicion that 2022 is going to lead to more conversations about <laughs> managing the funds than ever before because of the amount of inputs increasing and things like that. So, um, but that's, yeah, that's what I do for my day job is just assisting landowners improve their properties. Yeah. But you guys, um, go beyond just, uh, you know, property consultations and meeting with people face to face. You got a, a good bit going on, uh, outside of that, as far as, uh, content production as well. Don't you? Can you yes, sir. speak a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah. We do two podcasts a week. Um, you can find us on iTunes and all the other, uh, platforms where we basically discuss all of this in great detail, probably more detail than a lot of people want, but, um, we really try to unpack habitat management as far as, uh, all the things that we do in our day job. It could be breaking down properties we visited or breaking out problems that we continue to find, or, um, just trying to help improve the overall experience in owning land. Yeah. So. Well, like I said, I wanted to bring you on here today to to really kind of just look at the those first steps of somebody, say, you know, even in my case, I've just purchased a property for the first time. Uh, I have this goal in mind of, hey, I want to make this acreage as attractive to deer as possible and, and make it as huntable as, as possible. Um what are my first steps? Let's, let's talk about that. I mean, what are some of the first things I need to be doing as a a new property owner before I start, like you said, breaking out the chainsaw or, or uh, start disking up fields, you know? Yeah, I know. And, and so, you know, I think about it a lot where I feel, and I'm just as guilty. Let me emphasize that I'm just as guilty as someone else. Cause I can remember the days when I was fortunately enough, my brother and I have always had a family farm to to basically be our guinea pig. And I'm not sure if it's thrilled about the fact that it's been the guinea pig or not for so many years. But ultimately, when we were young men, it was like, hey, I just read this article about whatever and uh, X, you name it. And uh, let's go do it. And it was just like, get the chainsaws. I mean, <laughs> teenagers, get the chainsaw, just start cutting. It's like looking back, it's like, you know, we did some really good work, but we also did some stuff where it's like, I don't really know what we were thinking there. Like we, I remember that took multiple Saturdays and we didn't really do anything. And then I I remember a discussion we had at one point where my brother and I were uh, part of our property borders, a, a gravel road, a County road, and it's pretty open timber through there. And I asked him, I said, Hey, I remember you telling me about that shrub that was really good at like screening roads. This was probably 20 years ago. And he goes, yeah, uh, I don't know. It, it seems like it might be a little, they're, they're saying it might be a little bad for the landscape. And, and lo and behold, that was, that was autumn olive. Oh, <laughs> I, that he had told me that people were using it for screening. And I had talked to him and I was like, do you think we could get some of that autumn olive to plant along there? And he's like, oh. I don't know if we should. Looking back is one of the best ideas he ever had. But, um, I, cause that's one of those things that as a landowner, you can quickly go, Hey, I read this is good. Let's go do it. And it's just one guy's opinion, whoever wrote that article. And, and, uh, you know, that's one of the things about having a plan and knowing your plan of attack and, and owning a farm is, is crucial because if you haven't done it before, or you, you haven't really spent a great amount of time researching it, you can a do something that could be very, very bad B, you could do something that could be very, very costly and C, you could do something, whatever it may be, and not get anywhere with it. And um, that's so that's ultimately step one from a person who just just purchased or just got access to a property and trying to look ahead and go, okay, what am I going to do to make this better? You got to have a plan. And that plan should outline a couple different things. One of the big ones, and this is like the foundation for me on all of our properties. And it may take me a little bit to unpack it, but ultimately I can sum it up in one word and it's diversity. And it comes down to if I'm a deer hunter, if I'm a uh, deer manager, if I'm just a recreational enthusiast and I want to have all kinds of different native species on the farm, diversity has to be there. And that could come in many, many different forms, but 
as a deer hunter, diversity should be wanted just due to the fact that the resources being utilized in early season are not the same resources being utilized in late season. And the resources that are used during the rut are not always the same resources that would be used during the late season or the latter part of, of season. So understanding how diversity can help you from the hunting standpoint, and then looking at it from the habitat standpoint to where deer just spend more time on your property is, is crucial. And um, so diversity, just looking at it going, okay, how can I diversify this five acres, 10 acres, 50 acres, hundred acres, crucial. And that comes, I'd love to share more and what that looks like as we go through this podcast. And, and then ultimately, step number two, that's really crucial for me, in my, in my opinion, for land management is looking at what the neighborhood has, the surrounding acres, what my farm has, and seeing if there's any major voids in the resources needed for a whitetail deer to express their full potential. And that could be uh, food, cover, water, but ultimately the one that falls to the wayside so much and a lot of people really don't understand what it truly means is security. So those four things, and I can look around and, and say, you know, tall trees do not equal covered. They do not equal security. Uh, a big pond that the cows are drinking in on the neighbor's property doesn't necessarily mean water. Um, and then food doesn't mean the crop field, the cornfield down the road. That's that, you know, there's a small window of time when that's actually considered a food source. So really trying to understand what those would look like. And, um, you know, food comes in many, many forms, but natural vegetation would love, I would love for that to be the base, whether that be woody browse, herbaceous plants, um, all kinds of different types of shrubs, grasses, forbs, Anything and everything, even sedges. I've, you know, when you say sedges and grasses as forage, you're like, pump the brakes. <laughs> but at various times, and certain species can actually be beneficial, and and of course wanted. Um, and so all of that, really, in a nutshell, diversity and understanding the neighborhood is kind of first and foremost before our toes even have to touch the dirt. Real quick, can you kind of explain the difference between cover and security? Absolutely. Yeah. So cover, um, a lot of people think cover will be, you know, native grasses or um, young forest, or uh, it could be a log, a log timber operation. So timber or a forest with a bunch of treetops down that all could come in form of cover. Uh, Old fields, another way, just fallow fields that have weeds, goldenrod and stuff growing up three, four foot tall. Those are all cover but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's secure cover. If the neighbor's dog is running through there every day or the pack of beagles down the road go through there every day, it's cover that's not used because there's no security. And secure cover, I, I put a huge emphasis on security because you can see in my experience where deer use certain areas of farms for the security aspect when there's better cover in other parts of the farm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think a lot of times guys will be, when you see cover, you think, okay, there's, there's good cover, but ultimately it's not very good cover to start with. And because it's in an odd area where, uh, um, disturbance is pretty abundant from, from predators, whether that be two legged or four legged, it's just not secure. And then ultimately understanding that for me is the learning curve that's happened for me in over the last 10 years has been density of the cover and where a stand of big blue stem may look like really good cover, but ultimately a stand of big blue stem with little blue stem with some shrubs popping up, some brambles popping up and a scattered cedar tree across it looks a whole lot better from a cover and security standpoint than just a field of grass. Yeah. And then that falls right in line with the diversity standpoint where how can you make an old field better, add diversity to it. Now, do you tend to when you when you approach a new property like this, are you breaking that property up? And I know, of course, this is going to depend on the size of the property as well. But are, are you breaking that up into 
like individual management type units and and kind of managing each one independently or do you approach it more as just a, looking at the whole property as as one and and I guess managing it as one one unit in itself. Well, that's a good question and I think I would give the most famous biologist not that I'm a biologist but when it comes to research it seems like you always get this most common it depends. <laughs> now I'll try to go into that and say the way I manage my farm is I manage it as one because I'm thinking big picture. I'm thinking summer tanagers. I'm thinking wild turkey, bobwhite quail, cows, deer, all of being one. But then the individual management kind of breaks up in units, whether it be uh, an area that's kind of been cut pretty hard and it's a south facing slope. The way I manage that is different than a way that I would manage uh, even a cut part of a north slope. North slope and south slope get a little bit different management for me just because I can get a diverse uh, uh, plant response from one site to the next. So ultimately for, for me, when you, when you look at whether it be the 5, 10, 15 acres and you're just starting out, look at that and go, okay, what is it right now? Is it all timber? If it's all timber, then we're really getting an emphasis on timber management. If it's all timber or 70% timber and 20% kind of old field growing up thicket, if you will, you're down South. So we can say thicket, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's about. Right. Um, and then maybe like another acre. That's just this little kind of odd area. It's kind of growing up, but it's more open than everywhere else. Then I would say that open area has got different management than that kind of thicket. And then that thicket has different management than the, than the grown up timber. Um, but it's all kind of being managed in over the course of the year of, of one big unit, because ultimately that's my ground that I have control to, to, to say what's going to happen. So it, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, you're kind of, you're getting an end vision in mind from the start before you ever start saying, oh, I'm going to put a food plot over here. That You're looking at the whole property and kind of envisioning, okay, how do I want this to look like at the end of this process, which might, you know, might be. 10, 20 years down the road, but is, is yeah. that, is that kind of, I would what hope you're that about? it's, it's more like five years. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's times like my property right now in, in the Ozarks is being, it's being logged. And so when I look at that, of course we're in that, I mean, the logging trucks are still rolling out. So we're in that phase where it's like, oof, this is a little rough, <laughs> but it has to look that way for it us to get to that end goal of being more woodland, more savanna like where you see that herbaceous understory. And uh, that's to me, one thing that I feel like I really have gotten to the point uh, uh, every time I step on a property is, yeah, I see it for what it is right now. But ultimately, I want to try to visualize this for five years from now. Uh, once a lot of the heavy lifting is over to say, this is what it's going to look like. Now I'm not scared of the direction we're going. And as long as I, my landowners can start to see that vision and understand that the direction we're headed is something good, then I can get them on board with almost anything. Yeah. So what, what all I guess needs to be in this management plan, you know, for we're yeah. building a management plan for our property. What, what kind of things are, do we want to include in that? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things too is trying to understand, let's just, let's just talk about, uh, try to lay the guidelines and say that whatever this property is, is the focus on whitetail deer. That's the number one game we're chasing. So management, everything we do is kind of in a, in a focus of whitetail deer. And then let's say they are an archery hunter, but also a gun hunter. And they're going to start in September or October and they're going to hunt kind of way till they get their bucks tag or their buck tag. Ultimately, okay, we know that certain things are to be true um, with with the rut occurring at some point during the fall or or late season, depending on where you're at in the country. And I say, I'd say most guys love the rut. That's something we all fantasize about. So kind of like I love hunting the rut. Well, then we look at management at that point and saying, okay, everything we do is is with that focus, improving our experience of deer season. and. The, then the next, that's where we step into one of my big things is how do we get there as quickly as possible? And then how do we get there as quickly as possible? 
that doesn't require me hiring a contract crew to come and do all this work. And it costs me thousands and thousands of dollars. And this is, uh, this is the part that I is almost near and dear to my heart because (laughs) as I mentioned, my brother and I had that family farm, we were blessed enough to have the farm, but we were not blessed enough with the funds to run around and do a lot of stuff on that farm that required, um, major money to back us. And, um, it really allowed us the chance to do stuff that was more elbow grease and gritty and grind our way through it than it did hiring a dozer to come make a pretty food plot. So during that time in our lives, we had food plots that had stumps in the middle of them (laughs) because we could cut the trees, but we sure couldn't, didn't want to dig the stumps out. So our food plots had stumps in them. A lot of them were smaller. They were all done with hand tools uh, or a small 30 horse Massey Ferguson tractor um, that couldn't pull its hind end out of a, a puddle. Um, and and so using that has really helped us in going, OK, what are the most impactful things that we can do that are just like we do it and dear use it? And the first, I don't know, five, 10 years, we focused a lot on food plots because, um, well, let's just say it because the outdoor industry made it look like food plots were the, 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 the golden calf of, of deer hunting. (laughs) That's right. And, uh, so we did food plots and man, we made some beautiful food plots. Um, and one year in particular, we planted brassicas for the first time ever, and they were greens over knee high. and the turnip bulbs were, you know, baseball and softball size. And we thought, you know, we're going to see giants now. And I remember the deer barely touched it. And we were like, huh, okay, well, let's try uh, buck forage oats. I remember we tried a year and it was like, we did all that and we saw deer, but nothing really ever clicked until we broke the chainsaws out. And we realized that managing the natural landscape had far more uh, gains in our deer observations, our deer hunting success, and on down the line from turkeys and quail as well. And um, that's when for us, it was like, okay, I'm the landowner now and let's move forward. Well, one of the big things that lacks in most of the country is that real dense, secure cover. And so one of the big things when I'm working with a landowner on whatever size property could be 18 acres or 16 acres in Maryland, or it could be uh, 20 acres in Minnesota or 5,000 acres in Oklahoma, is trying to understand how we can make our hunting better and improve it. And and uh, one of our favorite tools is the chainsaw and a drip torch. Um, and for like for a lot of guys that can't burn, that doesn't mean the chainsaw moves any higher on the shelf than it, than at any other time. Uh, it should sit right there on the floor with fuel in it, ready to rock, because that's how crucial it is. And that's how beneficial it is in improving your farm. Um, so, yeah, chainsaw is, is kind of the step number one for us and going, OK, how can I create dense cover on this place? Um, because even even if um, the neighboring farm has been logged and cut over and it's just a jungle, at some point it won't be a jungle anymore. And at some point, regardless, though, if it is dense cover and it's the best you could ever make it, as long as you have it on your place, you're still going to have deer activity around it because that's how crucial dense cover is in, in the survival of white-tailed deer, especially a mature deer. Yeah, I, I had to laugh when you were talking about you and your brother creating those food plots because <laughs> you pretty much described uh, my situation here. I've been I've been going through that or, or this past year, um, the front half of my, I, you know, I know we talked a little bit before we started recording about the back half being open hardwoods and, and I'm definitely working on that uh, with the chainsaw. The front yeah. half was old pasture land that they let go and it's now in like 10 foot pines just mm-hmm. in most places, you know, thick as dog's hair, but there, there's a few little scattered openings in there. And of course there's in the, the, the openings are all fescue, but Anyway, I've been I've been going through the whole process of I, I wanted a food plot in there, so I'm out there, you know, rather than paying somebody 150 dollars an hour to bring out a skid steer with the mulching head on it, I'm I'm out there cutting these trees down with the old chainsaw and you know doing throw and grow uh, 
food plot around the stumps and that kind of stuff. So. Piling them up to burn them. And you're just like, I, I remember one time we, uh, we did that. We cut. And then we actually had the tractor at this point and we had a two bottom big old disc plow and we turned it all up. And then we, we, we went, I mean, it was two blades. So it was like, by it just seemed like it took forever. Plowed it all up. And then we turned and we had to plow the opposite direction just to break up that sod. And then we got the harrow out and we did that and realized that doesn't work too well. Let's go get the disc. And when we did, finished it all and we broadcast the seed, then we broke out cedars and drug it by hand just to cover the seed. And now, now fortunately, we run a no-till drill. And it's like, holy cow, I, I laugh every time I'm in those plots. But I get it. And <laughs> that's the thing, too, is going even even food plots in, in the management of them. If you're doing big scale or small scale, there's things to avoid. And, and you're like, you're down south. So if you were able to cut out enough to get sunlight and do perennial clover mix, you could have a phenomenal a phenomenal uh, plot that really just took some elbow grease and a few bucks to go buy the seed. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of food plots, I mean, obviously, like we talked about, that's kind of everyone's first initial go-to. It seems Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's the first thing a lot of guys want to do. I want to plant that food plot. Yeah. Um, And, and, uh, you know, I think they do have, have their place. You know, you've talked about that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that. What, what percentage of a property should be in food plots? Um, does every property need food plots? What's what's kind of your thoughts there? That, you know, that goes right into that diversity thing I used right there at the beginning. Even if it's five acres, 10 acres, 15 acres, 50 acres, and trying to understand how to add diversity is crucial. And so for me, um, it's like, okay, what is diversity? Well, it could be diversity of food plots as well. So I could have an area that's annual blend, that's turnips and radishes and annual clovers. Then I could have another little food plot that's got perennial clovers, like red clover and ladino clover, maybe some chicory mixed in, alfalfa mixed in. Um, or I, and I could have, you know, depending on the property, could have another bigger food plot that has standing grains uh, and then broadcasting some sort of clover blend in there. Um, as far as numbers, it's very hard for me ever to say, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, the properties, this many acres, you need to have this much in food plots because some food plots or some properties. And, and I've actually witnessed this as well uh, on properties that I've managed is trying to add food plots has harmed the overall productiveness of the farm where that little opening you had that was really attractive and it was and it was just an area that deer really loved to loaf. When you went in there and blew it out and turned it into the food plot, deer were way less active in it as they were when it was this dense little pocket of kind of overgrown field. So as far as numbers, yeah, it's good to have some food plots on each property, but don't go crazy with it and think that every property has to have three acres of food plots because some some unbelievably productive and successful farms I've been on. Um where the opposite of everything you've ever read. And in fact, the most humble piece of pie I've ever had to eat was a 24 acre property that I thought this one's going to be tough. And he had little bitty food plots dotted around and he ended up killing over 300 inches of antler in a year and a half (laughs) or in, I guess, two hunting seasons. Killed one late season, then killed one early season. It was 160, 100 upper 50s, and then another 130. It was like, I'm not going to say that anymore about any property because each place is different. Yeah. I'm not sure I answered your question because I feel like every time I talk, I'm like, ah, it depends. It depends. And maybe that's why I'm in, in the business I am because if anybody listens to me, they go, I'm, I've got analysis paralysis now. I don't know what to do. I'll just hire him. (laughs) (laughs) But that's really it. Like if, if I could really simplify it the best I could, I would say, regardless of the size of the property, it would be great to have two types of food food sources in your food plots, perennial blends and an annual blend. And then it'd be really great to have a pocket of dense cover, some areas of loafing cover, if you will, or areas where it's just more like a woodland. There's not the real dense woody structure, but there's a lot of herbaceous stuff growing up. So they're comfortable there. 
but I have the real dense areas for bedding. Then I've got areas for like down south, good thermal cover where it's relatively closed canopy where the wind can blow through and then get out of the heat. Um, but then I've got areas on the south slopes. If you've got terrain where they can get some sunlight and be warm and warm up on those cold winter days. I've got areas of water. I've got areas of hard mass for late winter food. I've got areas of soft mass for early season food. And then, you know, that's now we're really complicating things. Let's talk about, you mentioned something there about the, the, the cover types, the, you know, having an yeah. area of dense cover versus an area of loafing cover. How would you establish those? Say, say going in, it's just a, a monoculture forest, you know, it's just mature yes. oak hickory type forest or, you know, how Absolutely. would you get those two different cover types? What's, what's the differing management strategies there? I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, because that is something I feel like has a, has a hurdle for a lot of people. Um, and, and, if, and I, I now use this because this is like one of the things that I've really learned over the last 10 years in, in studying, uh, observing deer patterns and deer beds in and around these type of habitat types that I'll say. And so one of them being, let's just talk about the most common one that people find is, is closed canopy hardwoods where you may have a little bit of undergrowth, but for the most part, there's very little vegetation that grows underneath big mature trees. That's what a lot of people face. So then if you go in and you cut out some of those trees, hack and squirt, girdle and spray, cut a something happens to where now sunlight reaches the forest floor and there's herbaceous plants that are growing up, you can see, oh, wow, deer started to use that. And I think that's where some people get confused or, or it becomes cover because everything else is closed canopy and it's not. And obviously with a few weeds and stuff growing in the understory, that's better cover than what occurs elsewhere. But when it comes to mature deer and deer really seeking out that dense cover, it needs to have that understory growth coming up, but also some vegetation that's laying in a state that's horizontal with the ground. And so this is where the whole hinge cut fad is really taken off because you roll into closed canopy timber, you hinge cut some trees, and now all of a sudden you've got horizontal cover and some more sunlight. And it's leaps and bounds better than closed canopy forest. So the deer just go crazy and they're all about it. But there's ways that you can use that, make it better, as well as improve the other parts of the property to where a deer, of course, beds in the dense cover, but then it moves during daylight hours through the managed forest that has the herbaceous understory, can still find forage. And so you're ultimately expanding out the, the core area of that deer slowing down their movement patterns because some of the research um, latest research done has found that the denser the cover the more slowly the deer move through it basically they feel more comfortable they slow down that rapid speed of movement so if you can do that on your property ultimately you have a better chance of getting them into bow range but a even better chance of them leaving and going to the neighbor and getting shot Yep, that's that's always a good thing. <laughs> Keep them on I your mean, side of the fence exactly. <laughs> as much as and, possible. And let's be realistic. It's probably not feasible to to think you're going to keep them on your side of the property all of their whole life. Right. Like that's crazy talk. But if you can do it to where 75% of the time they're on your place during daylight, then it what are the chances that they're actually going to stand up and move towards your neighbor during daylight and he's actually going to be hunting his stand on the right wind and he's actually taking it serious enough to where he doesn't stink up place and he's actually going to get him to come into range and he's actually going to make a, a lethal shot like you start down that what if game and you can quickly break apart the fact that yeah the chances aren't in his favor right well talking about that you you mentioned early on about the the neighboring properties and and taking that into mm -hmm. consideration for your own management plan what what are some factors there you're looking at as as far as you know what's on the neighboring property and how Absolutely. that's going to how that's going to impact what you do on on your own property you know we've we've kind of circled the wagons a little bit in this in this next little discussion because 
what do we say that is pretty much the most common thing that most landowners do when they buy a piece of property? They do food plots, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like if you buy land, you do food plots. Or if you buy land, you're deer hunter, you do food plots. That's first and foremost. So you adding a food plot doesn't really do anything other than provide something that your neighbor's already providing. But the big thing is, what else can they do? Or what else are they doing? What are some of the most common things that people are doing? Could be a little water hole, could be fruit trees, could be mock scrapes, could be mineral, could be feeders. You start listing out the most common things and you'll find way down on the list, people actually managing dense cover or managing the forest. I mean, this is, it's, it's sad, but it seems like a relatively new concept for a lot of deer managers is to break out of the food plot, start going into managing the forest. And, and I think that's where a guy who's got smaller acreage can laugh himself all the way to the taxidermist <laughs> because the big landowner is probably focused on food plots, feeders, minerals, things like that. All of that is just an attraction. A deer is not going to bed next to a food plot or in a food plot, no matter how beautiful it looks. He's going to find secure cover. And so if you had the secure cover and you've got three acres and the whole thing is secure cover, that's where most likely he'll bet if he can't find it anywhere else in his home range. So your neighbor could spend thousands on food plots and you could spend an afternoon with a chainsaw. And for some reason other than deer, we know deer natural behavior, they spend the time on your place. And regardless of how beautiful the food plot is, this is one of my most common questions. Why are my deer nocturnal? I haven't even hunted the place. <laughs> Why are they still nocturnal? And I say, because they're not bedded on you. Yeah. And if you want to see a deer during daylight, get close to his bed. And, and so that's one thing that I just constantly preach to my landowners and preach on the podcast. You need secure cover. You got to have it because you're ultimately, people want to talk about deer being nocturnal and they're overpressured. But really, one of the, the bigger problem is that they're bedded further away from your trail camera than you realize. Because he's coming through at midnight doesn't mean that he's laying in his bed till 1130 and going, okay, it's safe to move now. He's moving during daylight or that last little bit. You just got to make sure it's happening on your property. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times. Uh, it's got to be a, a hundred times during the season. I'll see people post on on, in these social media groups that I'm in, you know, a lot of Georgia hunting based uh, social media groups or Southern hunting. And it's always, how do I get this deer out in my food plot during daylight hours? You know, they're getting these pictures of this deer at 3 a.m. Uh, how do yeah. I get him in here at daylight hours? And, you know, they got this food plot in the middle of mature pines with zero understory, you know, for hundreds of uh, of acres. Exactly. And, and it just, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a pandemic in and of itself where understanding that deer do not bed just where here, there and everywhere. These, they're especially a mature buck. He's made it to four or five because he's smart. And that's where a lot of times people are like, you know, the odd overlooked area next to a road interstate ditch that's thick and nasty and nobody ever hunts it. That's where he beds because nobody ever bothers him there. And you know, so when I say my own real world experience, like I did earlier, one of the, the most eye opening experiences of my life was the first time we cut a dense pocket on a, we took a spot that we knew deer already naturally liked to bed. So it was good based on terrain features. Then we went in and we knew that because we had jumped deer every time we were squirrel hunting when we were teenagers. And in our early twenties, it was like, we go through there squirrel hunting, there's deer bedded here. So what we did was, let's get the chainsaws out, see if we can make this even better. We cut the fire out of stuff. And the next fall, we did that in February. And the next October, we snuck in there and hunted just on the edge of it. And uh, a buck, we were sitting in the stand and it was getting dark and at almost six that day. And I don't know, it was a little after five. Matt Dye, my business partner now, he taps me and goes, hey, a deer just stood up. I know I just heard a deer stand up from their bed. and." Uh, he goes, it's somewhere right over here. And we got to look and he goes, there it is. It's that sicker eight buck. And it took him all of about 20 minutes to move maybe 50 yards. He moved. It was like 
slow motion as he would take a few steps and he would stand and he would stretch and he would kind of look around and he'd take a few more steps and he might browse on some some blackberry leaves and then he'd take a few steps and just stand there and stretch. It was like if every deer does anything remotely close to this, I need to be way closer to their bed in the afternoons than I ever thought before. And then once we saw that, we started cutting in these dense pockets and we call them bedding thickets now. And uh, every time we hunt close to them, it's like almost like a moth to flame where at some point during October, maybe not every day, but somebody's going to come through and check and see who's, who's hanging around that little thicket. Yeah. You touched on something there that, that made me think you mentioned that y'all did the work there, that it was in an area that the deer were already favoring. Yes. Uh, do you ever recommend when somebody's approaching management of a new property that, that they hunt it for maybe a year before they actually start digging into habitat work to, to kind of figure that kind of stuff out or. or I'm not the guy. Uh, how do I say this without sounding? Um, I'm a little more of a, of a let's do things as quickly as possible because life is short and I would rather understand and educate myself on what exactly what defines a pretty good bedding area based on no work being done. And I look for terrain features and what other people could look for if they don't have terrain is plant vegetation types, Um, whether it be some sort of shrub that's growing in a certain area um, for example, like in Southern Iowa, flat as a pancake, we went in and I found where, um, black elderberry was growing in the forest and there was these big, massive dirt beds all around it. Well, it wasn't that they loved black elderberry. It was the fact that black elderberry provided something that wasn't anywhere else in that area. Um, so I would tell landowners, don't be scared to start trying to manipulate immediately just because a season without any kind of cover is just a season where you're going to observe nocturnal buck movement, right. meandering deer. I would much rather just say, let's pick an area that is kind of centrally located. That's not next to a major road that we're going to be using. Let's cut a few trees and, and, or go in and see if we can find a few beds already. Um, and, and go in and, and make it a little bit better and see if that helps. Cause I'm just not a guy to want to waste my time on a, on a, on a set, uh, that's not going to have a lot of deer movement anyway. Right. Right. Yep. Just delaying another year of, uh, you know, what could another be better year. hunting. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the, the terrain features that I really look for is the, the crest of a ridge, like right when it starts to break where they can be basically bedded up against the, um, bedded up against the hillside with the scent blowing over the top of them. They're a little bit wind blocked because of that terrain and they can see off down below them. Um, that's one of my favorite areas. It could be, um, the sh- a shelf of a big ridge or mountainous terrain. Um, and, and ultimately I don't, I don't put a lot of bedding cuts in deep little hollers. Um, I don't put them down in, into little valleys or little nooks and crannies. I like them being on the sides of ridges on the, on the edge of a ridge, uh, uh, elevator ridge that breaks off a main ridge just off the crest would be a great area. Um, and those are just areas that you can go and look and start trying to find deer beds. And when you do, especially in the snow or when it's, you know, after the guns, after, after the heat of the rut, you can see those areas that have pretty good beds and go, okay, these, these are areas I want to improve. What about, how do you go about incorporating, um, I guess, huntability? into your management plan? I mean, are you looking at, as you're laying this all out, bedding areas, that kind of stuff, are are you thinking, you know, predominant wind directions and, and what all Absolutely. what all do you need to take into account there as you're, you're kind of piecing this together? For me, one of the big things that I always try to account for is trying to, no matter the size of the property, try to leave the heartbeat of it undisturbed as much as possible. And so sometimes this is where it gets a little bit if I'm spending money somewhere on a farm, I want to spend it on a road system. In particular, I'd love to create some boundary roads, um, roads that I can use as fire breaks, roads that I can hunt. Because if I'm, no matter the wind direction, at some point, you know, it seems like uh, 
it's changed since when I started bow hunting to now, but we get a lot more Southeast winds than we used to get when it used to be Southwest winds. Um, regardless, I want my scent to be blowing off of my property. Uh, it makes me sound like the worst neighbor in the world when I'm <laughs> talking about this, but they can do the same thing. <laughs> I don't care. Um, whatever. Uh, it's, it's fair game here, but I like to use the perimeter and lead the heartbeat of my property undisturbed. So that's not to say I don't have roads through the interior of my property and there, that I don't move through the interior of my property if I have to, but I want the wind to be in my favor. If I'm going to the heartbeat, I would like the heart of the property. I want the wind to be perfect and I want it to be the right time of the year. So i you know, in an ideal world, I all I always have boundary roads in place to for my access. Yeah. So, are you a proponent of sanctuaries? Then, like you were talking about, there kind of is that kind of the what you're talking I, about with the heartbeat of the property? Absolutely. And I think sanctuary is a term. Uh, we did a podcast on this where, you know, just labeling something sanctuary to me is just like okay, I stay out of it. That's one thing. That's great. But let's make it a true sanctuary. And the best way I've found to define it is imagine you take an egg and you crack it and you put it in a frying pan. The yolk, the yellow part of the egg is where I would like a bedding thicket, a dense area of cover. The white is an area that maybe I've done TSI and I'm staying out of all of it. But ultimately I know that the yolk is the heartbeat of where the deer are going to be moving, coming and going. So if you have a property, even if it's let's just say it's 50 acres, there might be four bedding cuts and then a lot of white part of that egg around it all the way in between. And so when you look at that area, that's a sanctuary, but I can get to the fringes of the sanctuary. I would much rather have really good dense cover. I, I, I think of it like this. If I had 10 acres that was, quote, sanctuary that had two bedding cuts in it, and some TSI in between, I would take that over 200 acres of timber that never gets disturbed, that's open. Because I know during the course of the fall, that 10 acres is going to be, is going to have way more deer activity than the whole 200 of closed canopy forest. Yeah. What yeah. what size do these bedding thickets need to be? Is there, is there a minimum? That. Is there a maximum? When you get into minimum, you need to consider that you could do a quarter acre, but you need to get adequate sunlight because if you only get a little bit of sunlight, your plant response is most likely going to be more of the bramble variety and woody component variety. So down south, you may get more sweet gum and more blackberry or more black raspberry than you do ragweed, pokeberry, goldenrod as you would. You would get that a lot better if you do at least a half acre to three acres. I don't generally go more than two just because. As people down south know, clear cuts or cutovers, after there's a little bit of plant response, they're pretty awesome to hunt by. But when it's 200 acres, <laughs> it's hard to define what the deer are doing. So imagine how beneficial that is and then cram that into a half acre and go, this is something I can really get on board with. Uh, I do want to touch on, you mentioned, we've talked about water a couple of times or you've, you've mentioned yeah. water in passing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How much of a factor is that? How, I mean, how much water do you need? You know, if you got a hundred yeah. acres and a creek run through the middle of it, do you need other water sources outside of that or what? I look at water as kind of one of those things where it's not like, yes, the deer will survive without it when it comes to if it's on your property or not. Like if there's creeks and ponds and seeps in the whole neighborhood, they're going to be just fine. But if I can put a little water hole in on the edge of a food plot that collects some water and now becomes something that they don't have to go to the neighbor to get water. I almost certainly do it. In fact, like uh, just this year we had the, the dozer in on our property to try to get some stuff knocked out and make some new food plots. And I said, give me 30 minutes and see what you can do on a pond. And what he created is exactly what I'm looking for about the size, maybe 20 yards across, maybe 10 yards across, about the size of a good size swimming pool, above ground swimming pool, where it's just like, you know, there's times of the year this might go dry. But then there's other times of the year during the fall where I get some of those fall rains and there's going to be water there. And if a buck's cruising around looking for does, 
and it's already in an area that he's going to frequent and there's water, he's going to get a drink most of the time if he needs one. And so I don't, it's not like something that's make or break, but it certainly adds diversity to your property. It certainly adds something that your neighbor might not have. So I would, I would do it if you could. Yeah. And I, I, as you were saying that, I remember where I was going a minute ago with the, with the bedding thicket again, there was one more question I had on that. Uh, again, can you just explain how you're, how you're creating these bedding thickets? Is it, I mean, are you clear cutting this, whatever half acre, two acre area? Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned some hinge cutting earlier. Are yeah, you hinge so cutting a, the whole thing or, or what? A general rule that I use and I recommend to clients is if I'm in the South, I, I usually break the country up into three units. If you look at like somewhere in Arkansas, Tennessee, over in South Carolina, Northern Georgia and South, I really try to focus in on herbaceous plants because Lord knows we have, you guys have enough woody growth with (laughs) sweet gums and all the other privets and all the other invasives. So trying to, trying to promote herbaceous plants is crucial. So when I go into a bedding cut and let's say it's three quarters of an acre, I generally try to do the rule of thirds and rule of thirds, meaning one third I hinge cut and those are, you know, flowering dogwood, maples, elms, and all less than eight inches in diameter. And then another third, I basically cut off shin high or ground level or knee high. And I treat that stump. Those are tulip poplar, sweet gum trees that I just don't want them to sprout back. Yeah. And then the other third is ones I just cut them off and I let them sprout back. And that's not to say if I roll into a cut or an area that I'm going to cut and there's a, you know, a nice 10 inch white oak that I don't leave that tree. But I always want to keep in mind, too, that there's probably 10 inch white oaks all around the area. Don't just fall in love with a white oak because it's a white oak. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm missing young forest. So if it's going to be detrimental to the area, then cut it down. It will be okay. So that's where I, 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 and then, so if you go to the Midwest, I stop using as much herbicide and I might incorporate a few more hinge cuts, but I never get more than 40%. Because if you do all hinge cuts, you create the game pickup sticks. A deer can't traverse through that. They're, they'll use the fringes. That's why you got to mix in the flush cuts, and the, just cutting all the way through and let that stump lay flat on the ground because you want deer to use the whole acre, the whole half acre, the whole acre and a half. You don't want them just to use the fringes. And um, then as you move north, you want to pretty much throw out herbicide unless it's, unless it's uh, got invasives and you just let everything sprout back because Lord knows they need woody brows in the north more than ever, especially this time of year. Yeah. Now, in some cases, as as folks are doing this habitat work on their property, um, there may be opportunities for for different state and, and federal cost share programs for certain types of habitat work. Absolutely. Um, what What's the best way for, I guess, a new landowner to kind of, you know, track those type of opportunities down? You know, so a lot of states have their own their own pool of funds like here in Missouri where you can sign up. Um, But a good rule of thumb, the NRCS uh, federal cost share opportunities, specifically the equip programs um, are, are really where a lot of our clients and listeners would try to use utilize um, and, and signing up for those. I think, I believe uh, this to be true, but I think you have to own the property for a year before you can really get enrolled in a lot of those. Um, and, and you know, there's all kinds of opportunities, whether it be edge feathering, whether it be temporary uh, forest openings, you roll in. I mean, you could incorpor- incorporate that into bedding thickets. Probably won't get to use hinge cutting as much, if at all, but at least you're getting sunlight on the forest floor and it's going to blow back up and in a nice thicket. It just might not be as beneficial as soon as you do it like you would if you mixed in hinge cuts. Um, so equip programs within RCS, there should be an office in almost every county in the country. You just got to figure out where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You got there. Mo- most of these programs aren't, aren't going to be centered around deer because, you know, deer, deer are not, uh, 
uh, a species at risk for the most part, but, but that monarch doesn't mean. Plantings. Yeah. Monarch yeah. plantings are great bedding areas. That's right. Uh, yeah. Prairie restoration, great bedding area. Edge feathering is promoted for quail. Still benefits the heck out of deer. Yeah, um, absolutely. General TSI is great for the deer. So, you know, I utilize them on my own farm. Yeah. Now I know, you know, you guys have, have done work while well, you have your own working farm and, and certainly probably do some consultations for others that are yeah. uh, managing a working type farm. So I guess kind of speak on that. E- even if you're out to uh, drive an income from, from your land, whether it's livestock or future timber harvest, uh, is there still an opportunity to kind of create a, a great deer habitat on a property like that? I think so. I mean, I feel like a black sheep in the consulting world sometimes when I start preaching about how much I love cattle. Um, Cause you know, cattle and deer do not go hand in hand and it's <laughs> not the cow's fault. It's the management's fault. If a person utilizes their cattle correctly um, and they're not overgrazing and they're moving the cattle pretty frequently and they're replicating historical bison herds, um, they can promote in, in areas of dense like warm season grass, if they're grazing them during the summer months, they can promote forbs the next growing season, which can provide uh, forage for the for the deer. Um, if a cattle farmer is incorporating diversity in his pastures and he's got clovers and alfalfas mixed in with the cool season grass or warm season grass, he then has food for the deer as well. And I always say like this, if a guy is smart, a landowner is smart in his management of the cows, and he's found a way to use those cows as a tool to then help offset the cost or pay for the farm. That just means he's primed and ready to go buy more ground. And it's as, as many deer hunters can probably attest, it's, it's very hard to, to turn deer hunting into a profit. And so uh, it's <laughs> yeah. going to be harder for a guy who's just deer hunting to then turn around and go buy more ground because it's not paying for itself unless you're doing timber harvest. So, um, we always, I mean, we're huge advocates for timber management and timber harvesting. Um, it's a great way to make some payments and help pay for the place. Um, general TSI contracts with Equip are, are, are a great tool um, using cows as, and then also using crop income if you're in one of those places that uh, has, has crops is another, another tool um, that, that we strongly advocate for and hope that people take advantage of it. Yep. Well, there's uh, there's definitely a lot, obviously, to this whole process. I mean, we've uh, we've we talked for an hour here, and I know you know we're we're just scratching the surface of, of everything involved with with the whole management uh, planning process of a property. So, I would encourage folks. I mean, obviously, you you pay a lot of money for your land in most cases if you're if you're purchasing a property. Um, you know, you're paying a lot of sinking a lot of money into seed and fertilizer, that kind of stuff. If you're planting food plots, <laughs> yeah. um, really it's a small expense to get a, uh, you know, a professional consultant like you guys involved to come out and, and put together a plan like this for you, where the person can just, you know, rather than having to overthink all this, they can look at that plan, which they've developed, I'm sure working hand in hand with you to start with, but, but to be able to just look at that plan and say, okay, here's, here's the steps I need to take. So Certainly yeah, nothing I, wrong with the DIY, you know, if, if that's the, the, your goal and that's what you want to do, but, uh, absolutely. Yeah. DIY but, is, is great. Um, you know, as long as you've got a good plan in place and you're, and you're going to go implement it and, and, and avoid those costly mistakes. I, I mean, I'm in business because people can pay to avoid learning from the failures that I've already done <laughs> and learned from. That's right. Um, and, you know, one big thing about my business that I enjoy so much is helping people because, yeah, it, it it does cost money to hire a consultant. But if it saves you money in the long run, then it pays for itself. And, you know, sometimes I've I've worked with clients who had big items listed out to purchase. Uh, one in particular was a was a pretty large property. And uh, he only had a few acres of food plots, but he wanted to buy a no-till drill. I was like, buddy, I'm saving you money here because you're in a part of the world where clover's way better for you and the property. Just plant clover. Don't worry about the drill. Save that money. Go spend it elsewhere. Yeah. 
Well, that's a whole uh, that, that's a whole another podcast about how people tend to want to overcomplicate food plots to start with. Oh, but but uh, we we won't go off in uh, that tangent. But that's a rabbit trail we yeah, recover from. Absolutely. But no, I've already had you on here for for an hour, a little over an hour. So um, I will wrap things up here. Hey, I I appreciate your time coming on here and and talking to me about land management and the the whole planning process. And uh, like you mentioned earlier, you guys, uh, you and, and Matt have a, a podcast and put out video content, that kind of stuff. So uh, where, where can the folks kind of keep up with you guys and what you're doing? And, and you know, if they want to contact you for a consultation, what's the best way for them to, to do yeah. that as well? I appreciate it, Brian. Yeah, we uh, so we do our our uh, weekly podcast, two of them. And you can just search Land and Legacy on any of your major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Um, if you're interested in consultation work, you can email us at info at land and legacy dot TV. Um, of course, we're on social media as well. Um, just just search land and legacy wherever you want to search and you'll find us at some point. There you go. And we'll we'll put yeah. links to all that in the uh, in the show notes as well. But yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks again, Adam. I appreciate it. And uh, always good to, to catch up. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Had fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, that's going to wrap up our interview with Adam Keith. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.